Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton, and this is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. And as many of you know my backstory, I am a suicide loss survivor, and that really spurred my interest in mental health and well-being. Suzanne Anderson has a really similar tale. On January 3rd of 2013, Suzanne's husband, David, took his own life. And with that devastating choice, he also claimed Suzanne's life as she knew it. I wanted to talk with Suzanne about her path through trauma and loss and how her wisdom might help other suicide loss survivors walk the next step. Suzanne is author of an incredible book, very well written and highly recommended called You Make Your Path by Walking, A Transformational Field Guide Through Trauma and Loss. Hi, Suzanne. It's so good to see you. Very good to see you. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I was first of all struck by how many similarities in our story. There were successful businessmen, uh, a really magical, beautiful life, a great love affair, and then this kind of shocking, traumatic loss. So would you tell people just a little bit about David? David was my second husband. And I I do feel, and I write about this in the book, that my life was sort of moving toward him. And it was that sense of having met my person. I had a, a very deep sense of belonging. And uh, we had an incredible life together that we created on a beautiful property and an island just off of uh, the coast here in Seattle, near Seattle. And I was doing my work with women in leadership and loving it and had been spending years actually doing research around what helps women really wake up to the next level of their calling or their potentiality now in these intense times. That book was getting ready to, well, it was complete. The manuscript was complete. That was the end of 2012. And David, who was a very charismatic, interesting man, you just couldn't meet David and not remember him. He was that mm-hmm. kind of a, a person. Um, and he had created a Indonesian antique furniture business in Seattle, had a workshop in Java, and also had brought over these antique Indonesian homes from Java to our property. And we lived in this sort of, I'm going to say, otherworldly place. It was mm-hmm. incredible. And it was his delight to do that. And how he did that, I don't know. It was his business. I had my business. And to just kind of come to the moment of the devastation, about three months prior to his death, he started to have tinnitus. So this ringing in the in the head, and it was just all consuming, actually, as it can be for people. It can be very much crazy making. Mm-hmm. He wasn't getting sleep. He wasn't able to go into the meditation states that he used to love to be in that had him be able to solve his problems. And so that was one thing, but I felt we were sort of getting a hold of that. I did not live with a depressed man, you know, someone who is a survivor of suicide. Often you've really been having to live through the darkness with somebody, mm-hmm. but that really wasn't David. He'd cycle up and down depending on the tinnitus. But actually, I'm convinced now, although none of we never 100% know why our loved ones leave, um, he did leave a note, so I have a little bit of a sense. But um, I, I did find out very quickly that his business, his castles, metaphorically and realistically, really, were coming down, that his business was imp- about to implode. And I, wa- I-, I want to expand on that, Suzanne, because when you look at statistically, the numbers are actually going down in terms of people who die by suicide who have a mental illness and much more profound now, especially in the case of middle-aged men, what they're seeing is uh, sustained pain that can't be treated, 
financial worry and stress and job loss as being the major cause. And so one of the reasons I was really interested in talking with you is just dispelling the myth that people are always mentally ill. They aren't. No, they, they aren't. aren't always mentally ill. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Yeah. Because tinnitus, there's no there's no cure for that. He was having to say, I'm gonna I can't live with this my whole life. There's no way I can live with this illness my whole life. That was one aspect. But then the other thing was the financial. And I do feel that those two elements, the two colliding together, because I think without the tinnitus, he could have in his meditations gone into the state that he could go into to figure out how am I gonna get through this, or even to be able to face it, maybe. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately that is what I needed to do was actually face the mess that he, that, he, that he left, that he did not have the strength to face. I have spoken with so many women like you, like myself, who had their own careers, their own lives, and assumed that their partner was as responsible and as diligent in managing the financial affairs as they were. That was a real aha to me was how often it is that men, when they are struggling financially, will keep that information from their beloved How did that hit you when you found out he had kept this enormous secret to himself? It was devastating. There was nothing he did to to make it easier for me. Of course, this enormous sense of betrayal. Our businesses, we met each other later in life. And so I had my own business. We didn't file taxes together. We Mm -hmm. were running independently, but I 100% trusted him. Mm -hmm. And I did make the mistake that I own now of not investigating. I mean, I was married. I should have looked further. I should have looked at this. I should have been more curious. But one of the things I did was very aware from the beginning uh, was that I wasn't going to go through this and what we could call a spiritual bypass, which is, you know, he was suffering. I understand. I make space for this. We're all going to a good place in the end or however that might have taken shape. And I have a very deep and long-term spiritual uh, practice and and I have an orientation. Certainly that was very helpful for me, but I was also absolutely 100% committed to living this in an embodied way. And so to come to forgiveness, I wanted and did walk through this in an embodied way. And in many sense, I could say the identity to whom this happened, you know, at the beginning was not the identity that could forgive him fully. But I did get to that identity. That mm-hmm. it, it took me time to go through the anger, the grief, the fear to really be with all of those feelings honestly to finally arrive there. One of the uh, most profound things that I saw that you did very differently than I did, and I think that was because of your spiritual training, is that you immediately knew how important it was to have ritual around his death, around your grieving, around precisely how you wanted to move through it. I mean, I was so shocked and taking care of a child and full-time work. And, you know, I remember myself in a very harried and not very grounded way. So talk about some of those routines that you developed for yourself and for the people around him who loved him to be able to move forward. Well, you know, this was something I teach in the work that I do with women because we've we've lost actually, unfortunately, in our culture, the understanding yeah. of what ritual. It's a language. There's a language of ritual that combines the left and right hemispheres of the brain, the feminine and the masculine aspects of ourselves. And I knew this because I worked with this, but also the work that I do with involves uh, trauma. So it's working with the early, you could say, developmental traumas. You know, where when they were younger, we learned to put parts of ourselves into shadows. I knew, as I could say, 
I was already trauma informed in that sense. But I knew that most of what was going to go on from the, you could say the psychological model of the iceberg, where you have, you know, who I think I am, the conscious mind at the top of above the water and two thirds of the iceberg underneath the water, which is the unconscious, where really that's what's driving our behavior. I knew I needed to speak to that two thirds of me during shock and trauma, because mostly my prefrontal lobe was off anyway. You know, you lose that ability. That's just one of our human mechanisms. Yeah. It's a way that our nervous systems can calibrate. But I knew there was a lot going on below the water. And so very early on, um, one of the first rituals I did was uh, a gathering where I called all of my good friends and family, his family together. But it was a group of maybe 35 to the house. This was about two weeks after he died. And what I wanted to have happen was there would be congruence between what I'm feeling on the, what everyone's feeling. And some people were feeling very angry. Some people were feeling very sad. Some people were just absolutely confused. The, the main thing is that we can feel what we feel. That, that's the main, and I knew that for, that everybody would, that would be normalized in some way. So one aspect of the ritual, and this I'll just share because I write about this in the book, but to give you a sense of how it can work. The way we began was we all sat in, in our living room and I have a stone fireplace and a stone hearth. And I had found one of David's antique Chinese um, bowls, beautiful bowl worth a lot and had a little chip out of it. And I stood at the hearth and one of my friends um who was also very impacted by this, was shaking her shamanic rattles. You've probably heard those, you know, how that, that can go. And it was, it ended up, it sort of seemed like she had nine arms. It was just mm -hmm. a cacophony of the rattling. And when it got to a total pitch, I just smashed this vessel on the hearth and it broke into a million pieces. Mm. The message, but this is how ritual can work. I could feel the whole room was, it just dropped us in to the reality that there will be no putting back together of this life the way that it was. I needed that in my body. I'm not gluing these pieces back together. This is not like one little chip out and I'm going to do a fancy Japanese thing with the gold. No, this is this life, that is over. I don't know what's ahead, but can we just get congruent with the reality now. And I'm, I'll never forget how that felt in my own body. And I think how that rippled into the whole group, actually. If I see people who are really suffering, especially kind of prolonged grief, there is a big element of just refusal to accept what is. There is a holding on to the anger and the betrayal and the feeling that the life they had planned for themselves is no longer, and they cannot accept reality to move on. That's amazing that you did that. It was heartbreaking to watch as you had to navigate through this magical life that it was filled with so much intention and love and come to the realization that you would have to sell off all of this property and these pieces of yourself. So because especially I think women nest in areas that help them sustain themselves, how did you take care of yourself during that process? Because other people are doing it too, you know, whether it's moving out of an apartment that they shared with someone who died by suicide, but you did it on a really grand scale. Yeah, it was a grand scale. I'm going to go back to where you started and you beautifully summarized this invitation really in a trauma like this to be with what is because 
that is so hard, so, so hard when it's something like this out of the blue and you start to see what's actually the skeletons come out of the closet and it's like, whoa. And the in, in trauma, we, we naturally have this denial that goes on and it actually is part of the natural cycle. It's healthy initially. That's what I was saying. You know, you don't have that. There's sort of part of you, this isn't happening to me. This can't be happening to me. There's no way I'm in the center of this story. This is not happening. So I will say there's a place for that initially, but because the nervous system can kind of calibrate. But if, if you hang out there, as you were describing for a long time, you no longer are moving. And the, the title of my book, You Make Your Path by Walking, is the idea that there is a movement in life. And I know for myself, it was as much as I could and as fast as I could, I was working to be here now with what was, because I knew that this, I'm not getting this day back. I'm not getting this minute back. And if I'm doing this all, you know, to get somewhere, in other words, the path is all about where I'm going to get to, back to something or to, you know, some future, some. I'm going to miss whatever this is. And the only chance, and now I know this to be true, I didn't 100% know this when I started on this path, but I do now know that how we are able to be with what is determines how what unfolds out ahead. Because you see things, because I'm here, you know, I can see what the next stone is, let's say. I'm not fixated on the past. So self-care for me was a big part about bringing myself back. I had a lot of practices already in my life, meditation practices, exercise practices, journaling practices, lots of rituals that I did, ways that I would care for myself. And then community was the other, was a big, big piece for me. For people that um, still feel the profound stigma that's left by suicide, how would you encourage them to build community even as they are feeling somewhat ashamed of their partner's choice? Oh, yeah. Okay. Thank you for that question, because this was the thing for me from the beginning, and that this was not my suicide. And I every day went through a little ritual where I would sit on the side of my bed, even if I didn't feel like it, because I just wanted to pull the blankets over me and say, I am grateful that I am here now in this body, in this incarnation. You know, I may my day be a blessing. Like I'm going to be here and I'm going to be in this day. And part of that for me was very deliberately navigating I would say mindfully, the suicide swamp, because it wants to take everything down with it. It's kind of a uh, whirlpool. Mm -hmm. And I had to every day keep remembering, I did not choose to do this. I am here. I choose life, actually. And so that would come about in small ways, like meeting people randomly who knew David and how did he die? What happened? And rather than say, I don't know, I would say he died by suicide. Like I didn't hide it. It took something. I mean, it it it, it takes something, as, as I'm sure you know, to stand in a in a different space than the shame that I do know because of what David wrote to me. It, it was his shame was a very big part of what took him out. You know, it is interesting to me that you said you got to the place of forgiveness because I've often felt like the five so-called stages of grief really needed to be augmented to include forgiveness because I think until that happens, it is impossible to really thoroughly go through all the other stages that you, you actually must forgive the person for their choice. And for me, one of the most helpful things was talking with suicide attempt survivors and truly understanding the depth of their pain and 
what it was like to live 24 hours a day with suicidal ideation. And I had an image that was referred to me of a guy who said I, it was as if I was in a burning building and I could either jump or be burned. That was it. So short of that, how did you come to an understanding to get to that forgiveness piece? Because I think everybody's journey to get there is very different. And, and mine essentially was now I understand his decision. I understand why he did it. It's not my decision, but I do understand and forgive him for that one. Yeah. And I think that for me, there was both the trying to understand mentally. And so there's that level of forgiveness, maybe when that that drops in. And I did also talk to suicide survivors. And I understood from what he wrote me that, that, that this was really all he could do. It really was all he could do. Mm-hmm. So I understood that, I would say, pretty early. But my heart was not ready to forgive him yet. But I also knew that as long as I held back the forgiveness, that I was holding back my own freedom. There was a way I was still held hostage by the anger, by that limitation. And so I would say that was a deeper process for me of um, letting it go through my heart, of really finding again the, the true love, because I felt so loved by him. I felt loved by him even as he left. And in many ways, it was our loving that prepared me to be able to handle because I feel like parts of me were healed in our in our 10 years together. And and even his letter to me when was very loving. So I you know some that's not always the case. Either there's no letter or or there's an angry letter. But my own heart coming around again to the, the full stream of Love also meant I had to process more of my own grief, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and really be with the, the real loss of this partner that I, and, and the life that I had seen us having together. Till it finally kind of got, came, came, you know, all the way in my body. I was so heartened when I saw that you had spent enough time in this process and started actually starting to date very funny and awkward and, of course, embarrassing situations as they all are. But where are you now in terms of your ability to move on to a new relationship and love differently with a different human? Yes. Well, that that again was sort of a commitment I had for myself. This does not mean I will never love again. And I, I wanted my heart you know, the breaking open of my heart to have more of me available. That would be, that was my sort of what I, how I was holding it. I didn't, I, I wasn't ready for dating. And I tell this in the, in the, in the book, I there was no part of me that wanted to go on a date. And ultimately the person I met had been already divorced for several years and someone set up a dinner that we went to and I did not want to go. And I resisted going and I was very clear this was not a date. So I, I was taking myself by the hand slowly through this, you know, honoring where, where I was, I would say. And, uh, and I've continued to do that um, with the same person uh, that you'll, you read about in the, in the book. And I'd say that's been a very honest journey for me of growing myself up in giving myself the time I needed to come into relationship again uh, we, some of the old, the, the wounds, you could say the, the, the trails from that wound, I could only really do the healing of those in relationship. You oh, know? how wonderful. That's lovely. Right. Or the lack of trust or the, yeah, they're going to leave or, or what's really going on behind there. All of those things that weren't necessarily his to handle, but they're coming up between us. So now it's ours. And I didn't even know they were there till they're there, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's beautiful. And you still continue to do your work in the leadership realm with women. If people want to find out more about your books or the way of the mysterious woman and some of the workshops that you lead, how do they find you? Yeah, the best way is my website, which is mysterialwoman.com. And that's M-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A-L. It's a word I invented, I just want to say. Mm-hmm. Like, everything's on the website, more about me, more about our programs, um, links to both books. And I will say I also have um, created a, a resource, a poetry resource. Poetry was a big part of my own healing. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if that was helpful for you during the process, but I've collected all the poems that were super powerful for me that I could kind of rest into both when you're going through either the descent, when you've just gotten pulled down, when you're in the, the dark, that would be what I call the initiation time, or when you're ready to come back out of the return. I love it. Suzanne, what a wonderful conversation. And the book again is You Make Your Path by Walking, a transformational field guide through trauma and loss. It was a delight to talk with you, Suzanne. Thank you. And you too. Bye.